It's good to see everyone this morning, and uh, we're glad that you're here. It's been a great week, a good week. Uh, the ladies outdid themselves in bringing muffins and goodies and stuff for the school over here, uh, the independent school. We took things down to the teachers and staff workers there on on Friday, and uh my wife wanted to me to extend thank you to all of the ladies who supplied the muffins and the goodies for for that, and uh, all of those that went and helped and cleaned up and just made it a real success. We're very thankful for that. So thank you for doing that. Let's turn to John chapter four, Gospel of John chapter four. We're going to begin reading this morning at verse 21. John 4, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Worship is a very misunderstood thing in our time. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of semblance or shall we say, effort put forth to worship. And yet, at the same time this is taking place, there is a, there's a lot of illegitimate worship going on in our world around us. So Jesus really gives this woman uh, a definition, uh, if you will, and a and an illustration of what true worship, legitimate worship, looks like. And the problem that the Samaritans had and the problem that the Jews had in their worship is the same problem that exists today in religious worship. It was a worship that wasn't true. Jesus plainly tells her, you don't know what you're worshiping. You don't know what you're doing when you worship. I think that's probably true of a great deal of society around us. They don't know what they're worshiping, and they don't know how to worship. And so the worship that they do, the effort they do put forth for worship isn't true or legitimate in the sight of God. They worshiped an external from an external standpoint. It was going through the motions. 
Oh, what a problem this is. How many people come on Sunday mornings to churches all across the world and just go through motions? And not they don't really think about what they're doing or how they're doing it. Or what does it mean? They conform to ritual ceremony. The Jews and the Samaritans alike were so steeped in these externals that they didn't even really know who or what they were doing, worshiping. But now that the Messiah had finally come, true worshipers would now worship within their own spirits. They would worship in their own spirits. And that worship then would be in line with God's truth according to the Scriptures. No longer would they depend on the sacrifices and offerings that they brought to please God. But rather, the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart would be acceptable in His sight. He does not despise a broken and contrite heart. In fact, he is inexorably moved toward brokenness. So now they would depend on one sacrifice, a final sacrifice and an offering that was not of their own doing. Now think about it for a moment. How much... Of life do we depend on that is our own doing? (laughs) Great amount. Huge amount. We depend on that we do. And yet, true worship can only come from a spirit that is, that says, I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to add. I'm, I'm empty before you. This is what God wants the most. He wants Me and you as vessels to come before Him empty so He can fill us. Anything we put in that cup will not do in true worship. Now we left this passage last week at verse 23 when He says the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth and the Father seeking such to worship Him. Now, from that passage, we looked at two of the three things that we find in that passage. There are two phrases that give us three truths to cling to. The first one is that there is a difference between true worshipers and false ones. We saw that in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus parts the sheep from the goats and the goats that are on his left hand say, but Lord, we did this and we did that and we did the other. And what does he say to them? I never knew you. You, I don't, I don't recognize your worship. People who are, these are people who worship falsely. There are people who are capable of worshiping falsely. The word true is the indicator that divides the true from the false. True worship is genuine. True worship is real. It is valid. It is trustworthy. And it is not just in name only. It resembles true worship. 
True worship corresponds to God's methods and God's commands. There is a difference between true and false worshipers. Number two, there is these true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The word worship has to do with our with total reverence and honor shown to the one worshipped. Proskuneo, you remember the word proskuneo. It means to bow or prostrate oneself before, to, to throw the kisses of adoration towards. Remember that? <clears throat> the spirit that he speaks of in verse 23 is man's own spirit, that which is in the heart. That which comes from the heart, from his soul, which has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. So true worship is an internal thing. It does not conform to ceremony, outward ceremony and ritual. It's a matter of the whole heart giving honor to God and being surrendered to him consistent with The word of truth, the scriptures. Number three, which we left off from last time, is this. That these true worshipers are those who are sought for and captured by the Heavenly Father. This is one of the greatest, most most blessing-filled Portions of scripture that you can find. True worship comes from a heart that has been regenerated and made able and ready to worship by an act of God in regeneration. Now regeneration is equal to being born again. It's We're regenerated, we're Reborn, created new. The Apostle Paul calls this the circumcision of the heart in Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Notice the difference between, between verse 23 and verse And Philippians 3, we worship by the Spirit of God who empowers us for the worship, but we worship in our spirit. In other words, our spirit, the inner part of us, conforms itself to the Holy Spirit to worship God. And then he goes on to say, we were, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory. We glory in Jesus Christ. He becomes the center of our worship. Christ is the center of worship. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now why does he add that last little line there? Because it is so easy to put confidence in our flesh. What we can do. What we can dream up. How we can make it better. How we can make it more palatable. How we can make it more entertaining. And this is where much of Christianity has gone off the rails. In trying to 
in trying to satisfy people's felt needs rather than just simply going to the scriptures and seeing how God wants to be worshipped in doing that. Conforming ourselves to what God says rather than how we feel about it or what we want to see happen. Now, he is not saying that the Father, please understand, he is not saying that the Father is seeking or searching for those who have made themselves worshipers or who are available as worshipers, but that he intently and intensely yearns for his elect ones while constantly drawing them to himself so that he might make them into true worshipers. There's a difference in believing that someone can make themselves a worshiper by their own, an act of their own will versus God making them a worshiper by an act of his own will. Quite frankly, the unbelieving individual has no ability to make themselves a worshiper. We will see that clearly as we get into the Gospel of John. In fact, Jesus said, Son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He is the one that comes seeking. Nobody seeks after God. Romans 3 tells us that. Nobody seeks God. God is the one that seeks us. Now this implies more than than God just looking around for people to worship Him. God is not just strolling through the world looking around for someone to worship Him. That's not how God operates. Seeking has the idea of diligently, earnestly, and tenaciously searching for something, sparing no effort for the sought object, is valued to the highest degree. Don't let that go to your head. When we say that God is seeking such to worship Him, the emphasis is not on the individual, but on God Himself. We are not valued for the worshiper. The worshiper is not the one necessarily valued but rather the one or the object of their worship is the one valued. We see that very clearly in many passages. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 13. I'll give you one, Luke 15 verse 8. He says this, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not take a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently... Until she finds it. Did the woman with the lost coin value the coin for the benefit of the coin? Or did she value the coin for her own benefit in finding it? So you see, God is, God is searching. God is seeking. Worshippers, and they're called His chosen ones or His elect ones. He is seeking them and He goes diligently through time bringing them to Himself so that He receives glory in their worship 
It's never about us. You and I are of little value compared to the value of the Father whom we worship. This is the way God seeks his own. God is the one who takes the initiative in salvation. It is never man. It is always for the benefit of God himself. Even though his seeking of his elect ones does culminate in blessings to the ones he seeks. We benefit from the fact that God seeks us. We are blessed with every heavenly blessing in Christ, are we not? Ephesians 1. But that's not the emphasis. Even though we're blessed and even though we we rejoice in the fact that we're blessed by God... The worship is the result of that goes back to him. So that he stands out as the pinnacle. Not We don't just rejoice in our blessings to rejoice in blessing. We rejoice because of what he has done. And we turn our worship back to him because of it. John chapter 6 verse 37. All that the Father gives me will, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now when he says raise it up, he's talking about the collective whole of those that the Father has given him. All the individuals, all the souls that that the Father has given to his Son. Collectively, he will raise them all up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You couldn't even approach God unless God draws. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit. All mine are yours, Jesus said to the Father. All mine are yours, and I am glorified in them. Father, I desire that also those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? So that they'll be blessed? No. I desire that they'll be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It is not about us. It's about him. You look at the great passages in Revelation, the worship that takes place, it's all pointed in one direction. It's pointed toward the throne. So God seeks... And enables worship in man's spirit, not in his flesh. You say, well, the body has got to be involved in it somehow. It is. It's involved in submitting to the spirit, our spirit, to worship God. Many people consider that they have worshipped if they are in the right place, doing the right things at the right time. That's not necessarily so. All attempts to truly worship in anything that involves the flesh is not true worship. 
If you're depending on the flesh in any way, you have forfeited true worship. So trying to produce what is fleshly or what feels good or just for the sake of the feeling, and this is a real trap in our society. I mean, this this progressive movement of of uh, of the seeker sensitive church, which is not as strong now as it was a few years ago, but still it's going on, is nothing more than a, a trap to lure people in by their own feelings. God is not interested in those things for worship. In fact, the Apostle Paul told the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, who came to worship all kinds of different gods, and they even worshiped gods that they didn't know existed in case they missed one. This is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to mankind and breath and everything. God doesn't need us to be fulfilled. He never did. John Owen writes, Hence the essential relation of God as a spirit to man possessed also a spirit of a spirit, speaking of our spirit, is such that man's spirit is the only part of him which can approach God in true worship. So what do you do? When you come to worship, in your spirit, you submit yourself, you submit yourself totally to the worship of God, and that means your body has to, has to obey that. God is not interested in some edifice or human concept or invention by men to be worshipped. He's not interested in that. This is further enhanced by Exodus chapter 20, where God gives instructions on how to make the altar on which sacrifices and offerings were to be made. Turn with me to Exodus 20, if you will. Genesis, Exodus. Not hard to find. Chapter 20. Notice, if you will, verses 24 through 26. Let's back up to verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses... Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall make, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it in your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. 
In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. In other words, don't cut the stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. What's God saying? He's saying if you're going to worship me, you cannot do it with your own hands. You cannot make it the way you want it to be. It has to be by my rules. By my will. The work of building the altar could have no human mark on it. Labor or preparation on it. No steps were to be made to approach God's altar. For that would only expose our shame in trying to climb up some other way. Jesus said the thief comes to try to climb up some other way. Now get this carefully. When you see people worshiping. In a way that is fleshly, they are trying to climb up some other way to worship God from their own perspective, not God's perspective. Steps, however, were necessary for us to be made into worshipers of God. But it was the Lord Jesus who made those steps. Not us. He's the one that we, how we approach God. And in approaching God through Him, there is no shame. And God does not turn anyone away who comes to Him in Christ. In Christ, we bow before His majesty. What stepping stones did this woman require that Jesus is speaking to? None at all. He's saying to her, you can't do anything. You don't know what to do. But the approach to to God was standing right in front of her. The steps to get there was right in front of her. And so Jesus reveals himself. Just a bit of a side note here. There are three musts. The word must There are three of them in John's gospel thus far that we have seen. There are more we'll get to later. But the first one is in chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again. The second one is in chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And the third one is here, that those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And these three musts, form three great doctrines of necessity. The first one is the necessity of the new birth. No one can worship God truly if they are not born again. For they have no capacity to worship, no ability to worship, and no desire to truly worship. The second one is the necessity of the cross and Christ's death upon it. Christ had to go to the cross in order for people to be able to worship him. His death is a necessary agent in the new birth. 
And then finally, there is the necessity of true worship. And they all belong together. The born again ones, empowered by the Spirit of God, brought to life by by God's own power, trusting in the death of their Savior to worship. Lest we underestimate the importance of true worship, understand that of the 14 uses of the word worship or worshipers in John's gospel, 10 of them are used here. This is the greatest treatise on true worship that exists in the scriptures. It is only here that Jesus defines and discusses what true worship is and how it is to be accomplished before God who seeks and finds people to worship Him. It is a necessary purpose in spiritual worship and it resides in the fact that God is spirit. That's why He says that men must worship Him in spirit and truth because God is spirit. He's not like us. He is not a man like we are. People like we are. God is spirit. The only reason that you, that you see in scripture, scriptures that speak about God's hand or God's ear or God's uh, mouth or whatever is, those are called anthropomorphisms. They are given so that we might get a, visual picture, we couldn't understand a spirit. Do you understand a spirit? Something you can't see? Something that is not caught in time or space? We would not understand God at all had He not given us those anthropomorphisms. Notice that he did not say that God is a spirit. There is no such thing as an indefinite article in the Greek. It does not exist. So he is not saying that God is a spirit among other spirits. In fact, the definite article is here. You don't see it in the English text, but it's there in the, in the original. The word spirit in verse 24 has the definite article showing that God is the spirit that stands alone in existence apart from all other spirits that were created by him. So what are those other spirits? Well, there are angels from which exist holy angels and demons. Satan himself was an angel, is an angel. Though a fallen one. And so, you have other spirits. There's the spirit of man. When Adam was created in the garden, God breathed into, into his nostrils the breath of life and he became what? A living soul. He had a living spirit which died when he sinned. God is completely spiritual in His existence. That is why He forbids any image of Him 
to be made of material substance. Because no one knows what he looks like. He is not to be worshipped as a stone deity or a a tree deity or some mountain like Mount Gerizim. He is the invisible God. As Dave mentioned this morning, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This is what the Israelites got wrong. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And Jesus quoted this passage in Matthew chapter 15 to the Pharisees who were doing exactly the same thing. That the ancient Israelites did. There cannot be the spirit and no truth. And neither can there be no truth but spirit in worship. In true worship. There has to be both. It has to come from the heart and from the scriptures. And since the scriptures are all about Christ. It has to be consumed with and occupied with him. If we come in here on a Sunday morning and we fail to to point our focus toward Christ, we have failed to worship. That's why the songs we sing, we're careful. They go to the glory of God and the praise of God in Christ Jesus. Who did all the work to make us into true worshipers. This woman... That takes us then to her statement. She says in verse 25, I know that when that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I who speak, am speaking to you, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. This woman is still not fully able to comprehend what she is hearing to this point. After all that Jesus has said to her, she still hasn't quite gotten it. And thus her statement. And like the Jews, the Samaritans were looking for a Messiah to come and free them. To tell them everything they needed to know. But to them it was all based upon The writing of Moses in the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected everything past that. And they they put their, their hope in the promise of Deuteronomy 18. Where Moses said to them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you will listen. God says, I will raise for them a prophet like you among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Is that not what Jesus did? He even said, I don't, I don't speak anything except what the father gives me. 
It's the Father who has the words. I'm His messenger. To her and to many like her, this Messiah would clear up all the confusion about worship and life in general. There was a difference between the Samaritans' worship at Mount Gerizim and the worship that took place in Mount Sion or in in Jerusalem. Confusion. The Messiah would clear all that up. He'll tell us everything we need to know. She had been taught that there would be one that would come who would be like Moses. A deliverer. He would, he would deliver and pe- the, take the people out of their current situation. Is that not what Moses did? He came to Egypt, to the people of God, and he delivered them out of the Egyptian bondage. He changed their circumstances. This Messiah to the Samaritan would be a deliverer who would deliver them from their circumstances. Messiah would be this deliverer, but not like she imagined. The Messiah would deliver his people from their sins, which was their greatest problem. Their greatest circumstance was their fallenness in sin. Now notice her next statement. She says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Is that not what he had just done? He had not only divulged all of this woman's sordid past with, in detail... But he also clearly explained to her the true nature of God and how he is to be worshipped. And not only to her, but to us. To all people. He had indeed told her all things that she needed to know. This is the heart of the gospel. The first thing people need is a knowledge of their own sinfulness and fallenness before God. And until they have that, they can't really know anything else about him or about salvation. A person has to be lost before they can be saved. Years ago, when we lived in Missouri, down south from here, I got up one morning to go out into the woods to hunt. And it was before... It was before, it was right near uh, sunset. So I went out in the woods, had a part, I had a friend with me, and I said, I'm going to go over here, and you go over there, and that way you don't shoot towards me, I won't shoot towards you, and so on. So we went, we separated, I went way across, I remember crossing a little stream and a field and went out into the woods, got pretty deep into the woods, and uh, I sat down on a on a, a log, just waiting. We were, we were hunting squirrels. And uh, I got to feeling kind of bad, feeling sick. And so I laid down on the ground for a while. 
I woke up and uh, <laughs> there were bugs and spiders and stuff crawling all over me. And uh, I got up and I looked around and I thought, okay, I, I need to get back to, to the vehicle where we stopped. So I, I started off and I got out of the woods and I looked around and I recognized nothing. But I thought I was in the right way, so I kept walking, kept walking. And before long, I didn't know where I was. It was getting dark. I was still in the woods. I should not have been in the woods at that time. And finally, I had to submit to the fact that I was lost. So I started... Yelling, I fired off a few shots, nothing. I happened to hear a car or a truck, whatever it was, on a road way up. So I turned and went towards that sound. And I came out on the road and I had to walk maybe a quarter or half a mile or so. And all of a sudden there was the car. But I was fine walking, believing that I knew exactly where I was until all of a sudden I realized I was lost. People are not saved until they know and understand that they're lost. That there's no way out of this. Sin has ruined them before God. And this is what Jesus told this woman. That was what she needed to know. He had told her all the things that she needed to know. Now, watch what he says. He plainly tells her, I who speak to you am he. The word he is not in the original text. It's been added. So, what is he saying to her? He is saying simply, I am. Which is what God called himself. When Moses stood before the burning bush and he said, who will I say who you are? And he said, you tell them I am who I am. I am has sent you. Jesus told this woman, I am. I'm Jehovah. The same God that you, that Moses Worship the same God that the Israelites worshipped. I am. This is Jesus' supreme messianic self-disclosure. He was the solution to all the problems and all the answers to all the questions of the human heart. And so the question then arises... Since Jesus openly tells her that he is the long-awaited Messiah, why did he just tell her? Why didn't he announce it to everybody? He didn't announce it to everyone that he came in contact with. In fact, he even told his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 20, 
He strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So why openly tell this woman? You have to understand, there was no one there but but Jesus and the woman. No one there. This is a a clear biblical truth. The answer to this is that the Heavenly Father chose only to disclose the truth to those whom He had chosen to receive it. All others, though they hear the message of the gospel, will not receive it, but cling to their own wisdom and their own understanding and their own standing in the world. Do we know that that's true biblically? Yes, it is. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me, please. Hold your place in John. Romans, 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 1. Starting in verse 26. This is a familiar passage to all of us. Listen to what he says and consider it based upon what we see in Jesus telling only her. Watch what what he says, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, for the purpose of, that no human being might boast in his presence. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God reveals his truth. He reveals who he is. But it's only His chosen ones that will receive it. Nobody else will receive it. And God planned it that way. Jesus used the statement of Jehovah in verse 26. He literally said, I who speak to you am. I am. So this is another of those I am titles that Jesus used so often in John's gospel. He was God in the flesh who had come down from the Father in heaven. He was the I am. This should have resonated with her because the Samaritans reverenced and attributed what they believed to Moses. Who was the one that God revealed to to as the I am. He heard the voice of God say, I am that I am. Twenty-three times I am is used by Jesus in John's gospel to show his divinity as the only son of the Father. And at least seven times it's coupled with very, very 
dramatic and illustrative terms to put meat on the I am. Listen, I am the bread of life. Everybody knows that you have to eat, stay alive. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd of the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Over and over again, the I am is used. It is to this great I am that heaven and earth shall bow and confess that he is Lord. Now, here's something very interesting. The Philippian passage that we read a moment ago has the title, or or not the one we read, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where it says that everything, everyone in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow before Christ and confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? So that word Lord is equal to I am and to Jehovah. Christ is the great Jehovah. He is the I am. He is the Lord. So when we say that Christ is Lord, what we're saying is, You are the I Am. You are Jehovah God. So important is the understanding of this that salvation rests in the necessity of knowing and believing that Jesus is the I Am and the Lord. People are not saved who do not know or recognize or admit or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Anyone who refuses to confess that Christ is Lord is not a true believer. John chapter 8, verse 24. Listen to it carefully. This is the proof text. And this is really, if this was the only one, it, was the only, it would be the only one we would need. But it's not. John 8, 24, I told you, speaking to the Pharisees, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, and the word He is inserted, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Ooh. Unless you believe that I'm Lord. You'll die in your sins. That's Lordship salvation, friends. He is saying you can't be saved unless you recognize that I'm God. Isn't that what John says? That we are of those who believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That He is God in the flesh. It's still true today. No one comes to the Father. No one is saved that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that they are sinners and they need to be 
saved. Now, it doesn't have to be done in those necessarily in those words. It's a matter of the heart. When the heart of man surrenders to the, to the lordship of Christ and, and understanding that they are sinners lost and they trust in Christ, believe in Christ for salvation, they're saved. It's not a specific set or road of words. It's an attitude of the heart. It's what God does in the heart. Bringing a person to life. Bringing them to Christ. Them seeing Christ as the one who will save them. This is the heart of the gospel. That the living Christ stands ready to save anyone who will trust in Him as Lord of their lives. Let's, let's take that gospel out. Let's share that gospel with others so that they might know that we have a God who saves sinners from their sin. Our world is, our world is very quickly imploding upon itself. Our nation is imploding upon itself. And if there was ever a time when there's a message of hope needed, it is now. We have that message of hope. Jesus said, I am. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one you need. Trust in me. We'll carry on. We find out that the woman indeed did. <laughs> See Jesus as her Messiah, as her Savior, as her Lord. And we'll look at her actions that prove that, the fruit of that, next time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the blessings of this day, for the worship that we have experienced this morning. We do pray, Lord, that we you would give us the knowledge and the ability each week, the desire to come and worship in spirit and truth that you might receive our worship we thank you for these things and for this lord's day bless we pray each one to the glory of your own name in jesus name we pray amen